on this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. All of these things are manifesting. It truly amazes me of how it works. Gold became the magic word that changed the history of our nation. Mr. Honest Gamble, that the poor man for his nickels and dimes can have. Oh, where'd you find that? Same place I discovered all these things. Right beneath our feet. That's amazing. Once when I was a kid, I was at a big fair with my family, and my granny, known as the lucky one, decided to play a carnival game, something I've only ever seen her do once in my entire life. The game worked like this. The player rolled a rubber ball across a plane of different colored cups, most of which were red, a loss, a few of which were yellow, a small prize, and one of which was black, the jumbo prize. I can see it perfectly in my memory, that gentle roll, the ball bumping over the red and the yellow, and then settling flawlessly into the single black cup. The rest of the day, I was flanked by an enormous white bear wearing shiny plush ice skates, and I was ready to show off to any and everyone just how rich I had gotten in a single moment of luck. But there was something else to it. I had focused all my belief into that rolling ball, and I felt almost as if I had imbued it with magic. My dad used to tell me that if I believed hard enough, as Jesus said, I could move a mountain. And not only that, there would be gold in those hills. Another time, I closed my eyes and believed so hard I forgot to breathe, hoping to win a basketball in an art fair drawing. I did win that basketball, and as I bounced it through the crowd, I kept feeling like I had some kind of power. I felt that my ritual believing had worked. Of course, it's easy to say that it didn't, and that's what I'm supposed to do here at American Hysteria. I know it was my first run-in with that pesky confirmation bias that created the illusion for me that my belief had indeed created my reality. I forgot all the times I had not won the drawing, all the times I lost at the bright, loud carnival games. This is just one quirky suburban kid's example of a much bigger phenomenon in American culture the dream to get rich quick, and the various ideas about just how to make that happen. For this episode, we'll look at some distinct manifestations of this wild fantasy, what we call the American dream, the California dream, and the Harlem dream, and how these very different psychologies have come together to create the American story of wealth and hope. The early colonists, the bizarre treasure hunters, those that rushed west at the hope of finding gold, the stories of enslaved people with their windfalls of cash, and an underground lottery that formed in Harlem and kept the black community economically stable 
for decades. We'll also look at the modern popular manifestation of getting rich quick through simply using the thoughts in your head to create your own reality. We'll look at another kind of dream too, the idea that what we dream while we're asleep could be a guiding light to illuminate just where our treasures lie, and that the notion of rituals and magic can give us everything we desire. That if we believe, that if we visualize, if we manifest, we can have a lavish life of untold riches, or more simply, economic security, and even more simply than that, freedom itself. You attract in your life whatever you think about because thoughts are things. I'm sure you've heard of the law of attraction because of the hit movie, The Secret. This is my vision board from 2007. I've got a diamond ring and vacations on here because I love the beach. And you won't believe this, but the ring that I got when I got engaged, it looks identical to the one on my vision board. I didn't even go to pick out the ring. It was really Many of us may remember this New York Times best-selling self-help book and the movie that preceded it, The Secret, which taught that through your thoughts, you can manifest whatever future you desire, including, perhaps most often by American standards, extravagant wealth. The Secret, written by bleach blonde Bindi Waring, Australian TV producer Rhonda Byrne in 2006, is one of an onslaught of self-help books touting what they call the law of attraction. That is, that anything you want, you can have by visualizing and manifesting health, love, and especially wealth simply if you visualize it enough. You can find hundreds of books, programs, lectures, and corporate courses that have evolved out of this philosophy. At this point, it's become commonplace. Now, the key here isn't hoping and making goals. That's great. Though highly critiqued for its pseudoscience and quantum physics, the secret has many testimonials to its success. And I don't necessarily believe that it's a bad way to live or a bad way to think. But there's more. The film version tells of a woman who visualized her cancer away with no medical treatment, and this is the philosophy of the founder of this new thought movement, Phineas Quimby, who allegedly cured his tuberculosis with just the power of positive thinking, and he popularized this personal power in the mid-1800s. The direct influence for her work, as stated by Rhonda Byrne, came in 1910 in a book called The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Waddles, which highlighted the fact that the Christian church had often valued and promoted poverty and austerity. But to Wallace D. Waddles, what was natural was abundance, and one could not reach their full spiritual and personal potential if they were poor. Quote, by thought, you can cause the gold in the hearts of the mountains to be impelled toward you. Waddles wrote almost 300 years after America began as a lottery of life and death, a gold rush in every sense of the word. The first English settlers to sail to what would become America did not come for religious freedom, but did so in the very first American get-rich-quick scheme, a search for gold 
funded by the Virginia Company of London. They would invest £222,000, which is about $20 million in today's dollar, into the project. Those financing this dangerous mission, taken on by 105 people in 1607, lost pretty much their entire investment. The only thing that would be returned to the London company would be shiploads of pirate. In layman's terms, fool's gold, with the explorers not realizing that they themselves had been duped. As funding from the London company ran thin, the English version of the lottery performed in the new settlements would come to provide a future for the colonists who were dying at an incredible rate. The earliest evidence of an official lottery was found to date back to 1720, but it's certain that they were popular before this time. In the 1720 lottery, for a small sum of 20 shillings, 350 locals could enter into a contest to win a brick house in Philadelphia. It's safe to say that without these competitions of luck, the colonies would have never been able to survive, and the America we know today would have never been built. Following these gold hunters would come the Protestants, of which the Puritans were a part, and they had an unabiding focus on work ethic and a belief that this work was a sign of possible salvation. As Calvinists, many of those under this umbrella believed that the people going to heaven were predestined already by God, completely under his control and will, and at the end of the day, there was nothing a person could do to assure their place in heaven. All they could really do was work and pray and keep their heads down and avoid the pride and avarice of the wealthy all in hopes of getting rich quick on those golden streets of heaven. On the other side, the explorers who came to find gold were agents of chance, of risk, looking for the riches of heaven on earth while they were still alive. The colonies in the east and the south began to grow and stabilize, mostly through capital produced by tobacco made possible by slave and indentured servant labor. But many of those who were not striking it rich as plantation owners revived the earlier spirit of American treasure hunting. Occultic traditions wound through the lives of adventurers, no longer seeking the natural discovery of gold for some other nation, but the legends of buried treasure by pirates and other mythical peoples with treasures that for once they could keep for themselves. These treasure hunts relied on astrology, dreams, diviners, and rituals. Most importantly was the seer, an archetype who could be anyone, man, woman, or child. And if they had a dream three times, it would reveal the area of a potential treasure chest. A divining rod was thus employed, created from a Y-shaped twig ranging from 18 inches to 2 feet long. The rod would be held in the hand and carried across the land until it twisted downward, indicating where they should begin to dig. But wait, you think the spirits would allow just any man to access their untold riches? Think again. 
Often the seekers believed that demonic forces guarded the treasure, sometimes in the form of an animal, like a dog or a cat or a snake, but most often the ghost of a young boy who had been murdered and buried along with the treasure in order to protect it. Other times it was a horseman holding his own head and blowing blue fire into the sky. In order to deal with these potential spirits, there were rituals that had to be followed. The most important was silence. Any misstep or words spoken could cause a noise and frighten the treasure away, literally. It was widely believed that the chests could run away from the men underground, soil and grass rising and falling with its path like it was a cartoon. In order to prevent these runaways, hunters would dig elaborate ditches around the site or use a more magical method, drawing wide witchy circles that acted as force fields for demons. In some accounts, a hen would be sacrificed and her blood used, along with hog dung, to be smeared on the spikes along the perimeter of the circle. Grasping a Bible, the astrologer of the group might hold a sword up to the sky, using the planets to help direct the ritual, telling whether or not a dog should be sacrificed or maybe a sheep lit on fire. These rituals and the hunt for treasure in general was annoying to contemporary Ben Franklin, who wrote in an essay, quote, you can hardly walk half a mile out of town on any side without observing several pits dug with that design. And perhaps some men, otherwise of very good sense, have been drawn into this practice through an overweening desire of sudden wealth and an easy credulity of what they so earnestly wished might be true. In the next century, these stories of buried gold would no longer read like children's books full of pirates and ghosts, but instead would be produced by the natural world, all the way in California, all the way in the West, a place that already represented untold possibilities as the nation kept manifesting its own prosperous destiny. In the year 1848, the western half of the United States was a wild and unsettled land, but new gold deposits were discovered in California, and thousands of Americans were lured across the plains to seek their fortunes. Gold became the magic word that changed the history of our nation. The first discovery of gold in the West was in January of 1848 by James Wilson Marshall, who was working under his employer, James Sutter. Marshall noticed an unfamiliar shine in the small channel of water leading to the mill that supported his farmland. They tested it, and this time it wasn't the fool's kind. Despite the rumors that followed, America had been fooled too many times, and at first there wasn't much interest in the whispers of California gold. That is, until one sly dog named Sam Brennan ran through the streets of San Francisco over and over, screaming, Gold! Gold in the American River! and shaking a chunk of it inside a glass jar while he published successful accounts in his personal newspaper. 
Suddenly, thousands flocked into this land near this tiny town called San Francisco, whose population jumped from 200 to tens of thousands. And by 1854, a span of just six years, 300,000 people would enter the area from all over the world. But instead of focusing on finding gold himself, Sam Brennan focused on what the influx of people would need to get by. He drove up the prices of shovels and gold pans to exorbitant levels, eventually selling single eggs to the desperate folks for the current equivalent of $25. Coffee was hiked up to the equivalent of $100 a pound, and new boots would set you back $2,500. Of course, Sam Brennan and those who copied his method were not the only gold rush hucksters. When selling to potential buyers of rich land, the men who owned the mines would simply create the appearance of gold. Using their shotguns loaded with gold dust, they would shoot into the sides of the mines until they sparkled, what we now know as salting the mine. If that wasn't enough, the scammers would place pieces of gold into the sticks of dynamite that would explode open the sides of the cave before the eyes of the buyer to ensure that the gold ran deep. But sometimes those buyers were keen to their tricks and brought their own dynamite. To counter this, and let me caveat here and say I couldn't corroborate this enough to claim that it's true, but it's just so good, the sellers would sprinkle gold dust into their chewing tobacco and spit it into the mine's crevices. Or they would consume a liquid elixir called bichloride of gold, which was once used to cure alcoholism and kidney problems, and then urinate into those cracks, which allegedly would also create the appearance of gold. But I'm no scientist. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American can hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active check out factor today and now back to the show 
This wild pop cultural circus changed the search for instant wealth into a kind of national obsession, replacing the generations of a widespread focus on that Protestant work ethic. The California dream took its seat next to the American one. The 49ers, as the early gold rushers were called, moved that mountain all right, and sometimes there was gold underneath. But most of the time, they came away with only modest gains, and many, many men were ruined by the choice to leave their old lives behind. The Gilded Age, as it would come to be known, followed the gold rush and was a time of rapid economic growth in the West, the expansion of the railroads across the nation. As industry boomed in the cities after the Industrial Revolution, robber barons or wealthy entrepreneurs concentrated their vast fortunes by busting unions and crushing their competitors until the rich became the super, super rich and the working class lived even more so below the poverty line. Sequestered to rat-infested tenements working 12-hour days, often alongside their own children, and they still struggled to by loaves of bread. The underlying problems of poverty were covered in a thin veneer of gold, as author Mark Twain encapsulated when he named the Gilded Age with his typical tongue-in-cheek wit. For many throughout American history, their dreams were far more modest, as it was near to impossible to believe that they might one day rise into that upper class. Before emancipation, it was far more likely for black people to be won in a lottery than to imagine winning even their very freedom, their dignity, their safety. As slavery became the foundation of American wealth, George Washington would continue the lottery in 1769 with prizes of orchards, lumber, fertile fields, and most often, enslaved men, women, and children. Fifty years later, an enslaved man named Denmark Vesey would do the same and use his money to buy his freedom, and using his new freedom would eventually lead what would have been the largest and bloodiest slave uprising in American history. Two of the other leaders of this mission were mystics. The first, a blind preacher named Philip, who had the powers of second sight and often was said to foretell the future with messages he received in his dreams. The second was a man named Gullah Jack, who gave each of the uprisers a crab claw to carry in their mouths that would render them invincible against white retaliation. But the plan was foiled, and Denmark Vesey was sentenced to death and subsequently hanged. Just a few years later, famous abolitionist writer and enslaved man Frederick Douglass would be inspired by the work of Denmark Vesey, but not the more superstitious elements that seeped into the plans of revolt. Like Benjamin Franklin with his rationalism and disdain for the belief in magical thinking, Protestant Christian Frederick Douglass also dismissed ritual as ridiculous, even demonic, but couldn't deny one experience that didn't make him rich in money, but set him on a new path toward the greatest wealth he could imagine at the time, 
his own freedom. In 1834, Frederick was sent to Maryland by his master for his insubordination, where lived a man named Edward Covey, who was famous for his ability to break those considered troublesome slaves. Here, Frederick underwent terrible torture, beatings, and grueling labor, which did come close to breaking his spirit. But one day, while making his way through the local woods, he met another enslaved man named Sandy Jenkins, who he called a genuine African, one who, quote, believed in a system for which I have no name. After listening to Frederick's situation, Sandy Jenkins decided he wanted to help him and instructed him to find a particular herb native to the area and to wear it on his right side. The mysterious man told Frederick that he had been wearing the same herb for years and that he had never been beaten by any slaveholder since. Initially, Frederick scoffed at the thought, but when Sandy mentioned that his religion and the books he'd been reading had not yet offered him any real protection and reminded him that there was nothing to lose by trying out this ritual, Frederick foraged for the herb and tied it to his right hip. The next day, when the slave master came to beat him, Frederick did the unthinkable. He fought back, hard, and for two hours the men struggled. And in the end, it was Frederick who won the fight, and he also scared the shit out of a cowering Edward Covey. Frederick was shocked at his own actions, unsure what had come over him, when just the day before, he couldn't have imagined taking a risk like that. He knew what would happen. He would be publicly whipped or even killed for a crime like that. But Covey never reported him to any authorities, and he faced no penalties for those actions. Remarkably, by Frederick's own account, Covey would never lay a finger on him ever again. The easy manner in which I got off was always a surprise to me. Later, Frederick said that this event was one of the most important moments in his life that would help him reach his eventual freedom. Though he still denied the power of that talisman with his rational, educated mind, a part of him couldn't help but wonder. Speaking of Sandy Jenkins, Frederick would acknowledge that, quote, A slight gleam or shadow of his superstition had fallen on me. Hitting the number can also move the spirit mightily. But it's the honestest gamble that the poor man for his nickels and dimes can have. Or the poor man's stock market, I'm sure people have heard that phrase. Almost a hundred years later, the same spirit would take hold in 1920s Harlem, as it would in many other American cities, when a new, underground version of the lottery rose to extreme popularity, one that would carry many, many black folks through the Great Depression and beyond. Known as the numbers game, or simply the numbers, this was a brainchild of a black immigrant from the West Indies named Casper Holstein. Using the knowledge he'd gained working as a messenger for the stock exchange, he created a new system that would produce a winner every day, with far less of a chance of the game being fixed. Though the numbers game wasn't a legal enterprise, 
it became one of the major cultural marks of the Harlem Renaissance. And it became so popular, in fact, that the black community began greeting each other not with a hello, but instead with a hearty, what was it? With the response being the three-digit number of the day. This gamble wasn't going to get any player rich by white American standards, but the modest windfalls they could receive off a nickel a day would make all the difference in the lives of those with low incomes in a city where 80% of the businesses were owned by whites that didn't even live in Harlem. Many used their winnings to open up businesses of their own or to send their kids to college. Enter Stephanie St. Clair, an educated black immigrant who was the only woman to ever have control over the Harlem lottery. After allegedly stabbing her abusive boyfriend in the eye with a fork after he tried to force her into sex work, she got involved with the illegal policy banks that ran the numbers game, the only place where black people could invest their money as they were not allowed to use legal banks. Eventually, Stephanie invested $10,000 into her own bank, and her career in the numbers game took off. Known as Madam Queen or just Queenie, Stephanie was a hero and a villain simultaneously, ruthless and generous and very well-dressed, often wearing a signature fur coat made of squirrels, along with pearls and her carefully styled hair topped with fashionable hats or a turban. You could say that Queenie did get rich relatively quick, because at the height of her career, she was making 20 grand a year, which in today's dollar is 300,000. Though Casper Holstein and Queenie were rivals in the business, as well as vicious and sometimes violent in their dealings, they both used their success to invest in the Harlem community. Casper, called, quote, Harlem's favorite hero by the New York Times in 1928, funded education scholarships and literacy programs for residents, while Queenie supported Black-owned policy banks and took out articles in local papers that educated Black people about their legal rights, as well as ones that called out instances of police brutality. Both would employ a vast number of people of color within their businesses, with the numbers almost single-handedly supporting the underground black economy. There were some very interesting parallels between the numbers game, the rituals that led lottery winner Denmark Vesey's plans for his slave revolt, and Frederick Douglass's mysterious abilities given to him, apparently, by a mystical man in the woods. Also not unlike the treasure-hunting movement we talked about earlier, those that played the numbers in Harlem relied heavily on dreams and their interpretations. Like those who made their money from the gold rush, capitalizing on the hope to get rich quick, a great deal of men and women were also creating a side industry that complemented the underground economy. Psychics, numerologists, palm readers, and crystal ball gazers. 
the extremely popular Aunt Sally's Policy Player's Dream Book became a staple for any serious numbers player, along with others like Old Aunt Dinah's Dream Book of Numbers and Gypsy's Witch Dream Book of Numbers, all of which offered three-digit numbers based on a huge variety of symbols that appeared in the player's dreams. Also for sale were various products derived from the West African traditions of hoodoo, like psalm prayer candles, incense, potions, and small bags containing lucky items. One such item was the very popular John the Conqueror root, based on a hero of black folklore, an African prince sold into American slavery who once used his cunning to outsmart his master. In the story, John falls in love with the devil's daughter and gallops back to Africa with her after stealing the devil's own horses. Writing of the myth, black author of Their Eyes Were Watching God, Zora Neale Hurston, said, quote, You will know then that no matter how bad things look now, it will be worse for those who seek to oppress us. Though I couldn't find confirmation, it sounds like this could be the route that Frederick Douglass wore at his side when he wailed on the slave master without fear, eventually escaping his own version of the devil. The spiritual aspect of the numbers game was abundantly clear, adding yet another dimension to its psychological importance. Black singer and civil rights activist Lena Horne said of the Black Lottery, quote, In the Negro ghetto, it's about the only hope you can afford. Poet Langston Hughes reiterated the same feeling, quote, The numbers is the salvation of Harlem, its Medicare, its little liver pills, its vitamins, its aspirins, and its analgesic balm combined. But as Prohibition ended and both the Italian and Jewish mafias were looking for new ways to make money, the Black Run numbers game soon began to face their wrath and fight back with a wrath of their own. Black numbers runners were beaten or murdered if they wouldn't give control of their businesses or portions of their earnings to mob boss Dutch Schultz, the only way they would be allowed to keep their jobs. With many deaths on both sides, police payoffs, and political bribing, the power of the white mobs overtook the numbers game, and Queenie and Casper would be ousted from power by the early 1930s. Although a huge blow to Black Harlem, the numbers game would continue to support their underground economy through the Great Depression and all the way into the 1970s. By 1971, the New York Times reported, quote, 60% of the area's economic life depends on the cash flow from the numbers. The numbers, which employed 100,000 workers across five boroughs. Numbers runners and policy banks still followed in Queenie and Casper's footsteps by bankrolling small businesses and donating to civil rights groups and black political candidates' campaigns. But of course, the government wouldn't let this stand forever. The numbers game was making nearly a billion dollars a year by 1980. 
And so lawmakers in New York copied the structure themselves and then painted the black numbers men as criminals, ignoring the calls to simply legitimize the underground lottery that was already booming, that would continue to benefit a marginalized population. But of course, the almost all-white assembly took over completely with a promise to funnel the profits into state education funds, something we're still told about the modern state lotteries to this very day. More after this. And now, back to the show. Speaking of... Do our modern lotteries that offer millions and millions in prizes and who donate a substantial amount, millions or even as some claim, a billion dollars a year of their profits to public schools, actually help? Well, not really. It seems like a great idea in theory, one not unlike the numbers runners supporting local education. But what really happens with the lottery is that the state receives the money in their education budgets, but not as a supplement. They use the money to pay for the budget and then reallocate the state money elsewhere. So it doesn't actually improve schools, it just keeps things the same. Low-income folks still invest far more in the lottery than their middle and upper-class counterparts, who tend to look down on this kind of gambling as irresponsible and downright stupid. Put one way, the lottery, as run by the state, uses its low-income residents as a way to pay for education, while the tax rates for the wealthiest in America have continued to plummet. You might say that money has become our main American god, not because we're some particularly greedy nation, but because we tell a story about it. We hold a dream, a dream that does come true on rare occasions, but mostly hangs hopefully in some future golden air. First, it came in the form of the American dream, the Protestant work ethic carried over the Atlantic that accompanied a belief that any material prosperity you may acquire was a sign of your favor with God, some shred of evidence that perhaps you might be one of the chosen ones that will get rich quick right after you die. The explorers, a lineage of adventurers that would later face the West's wilderness to find the California dream of gold, thought that maybe wealth had little to do with morals, and instead valued the excitement of this chaos of risk and a windfall of wealth to enjoy in this lifetime. The Harlem Dream, a lineage stretching back to the legacy of Denmark Vesey and Frederick Douglass up through the modest winds of the numbers game, was a dream of simply rising to some level of personal stability, first through the hope of freedom, and then the potential to make enough money to live a decent life. The hope to get rich quick is a mystical one, long imbued with magic. It is a belief of the simplest sort, an easy belief, a belief in future power and future ease, a belief in the transformative self and the potential to transform into a divine being, as those at the top of our hierarchy almost seem to appear, at least with the privileges that they're afforded. 
It's true that accruing wealth does make people's lives better, but there's more to it than that, at least according to an extensive study by Purdue University that surveyed 1.7 million people worldwide and found that the ideal yearly income for a single American citizen to reach a kind of maximum happiness and contentment was between seventy dollars and $105,000 a year. And anything above one hundred and five k seemed to add no real benefits to emotional well-being, and overall even showed a slight decrease in that happiness. Of course, most of us earn nowhere near those figures, and the average American yearly income is about forty-eight thousand a year. But that's still much higher than what's earned by Black workers, who average about thirty-nine thousand a year. And these figures still feel high for the service workers, who earn on average twenty-eight thousand a year, with black service workers making even less. It's no wonder that Americans hope for a windfall of cash. It can and usually does make a person's life easier. It gives them more freedom and time and ability to focus on the things that make them feel good. So don't believe that old adage that says money can't buy happiness. But consider that the very rich could be happier if they weren't hoarding all that cash. Unfortunately, the story of wealth has also been one of who is deserving. The Secret tells us that quote. The only reason a person does not have enough money is because they are blocking money from coming to them with their thoughts. A statement that wholly disregards the systemic issues that create poverty. As mentioned, the secret's biggest influence was the science of getting rich, and that book went even further. In it, Wallace D. Waddles tells us not to pity the poor and not to help them either. He forbids the quote study of poverty and warns against trying to understand and affect the systems that create poverty themselves. He tells us that the poor do not need help; they don't need charity. He says, quote, "Inspiration will cause them to rise out of their misery. If you want to help the poor, demonstrate to them that they can become rich. Prove it by getting rich yourself." You know, just make a vision board for your local homeless shelter and arrive in your newest fur coat. Do not try to understand the conditions that create poverty. Do not do anything to combat them, or you will attract that very poverty to yourself. I have to wonder: Is hope the greatest American hysteria of all? Of course, it isn't. It's so easy, I know, to laugh at the rituals of the treasure hunters and the gold rushers, the roots at the hip, the incense, the dream books. That's certainly what I'm supposed to do here, isn't it? Debunk hope. But I don't wanna. In any way, there is evidence that a sense of hope can better our mental and even physical health and lead to greater successes. It's a vital part of a happy life. Just as a certain level of income is, hope, unfortunately, is not exactly what books like The Secret traffic in. I like positive thinking. I believe it can help us in almost every way. 
It's the other side of the message that scares me when it teaches that our failures are all our fault, that if we just got it right, if we were just good enough, if we just thought the right way, our wealth would be a given. The secret author Rhonda Byrne certainly visualized her wealth and got rich quick when she appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show in 2007, leading to $300 million in sales, several more book deals, and a line of the secret merchandise, with Rhonda's estimated net worth reaching $100 million. We Americans now are no different in our search for this secret dreamy language that can lead to a windfall of cash. Just look at this wonderful recent example from 2005 when 110 lottery players beat the 1 in 3 million odds and got that second place prize, leading the officials to open an investigation into fraud. What did they find? Every winner had taken their number combo from a fortune cookie. Cookies from a variety of Chinese restaurants. Cookies that had all been made in the same factory in Queens, New York, and just happened to fall into the hands of serious lotto players, all of which ended up costing the lottery a pretty $19 million that they weren't expecting to pay out. The very skeptical Frederick Douglass tied that root of an African folk hero to his hip with only the smallest glimmer of hope that it could set him free, and he outran the greatest devil of his lifetime. We cannot escape the feeling that there is an invisible hand guiding us, that if we just do things exactly right, like the treasure hunters once thought, we will receive the rewards restricted to the luckiest among us, the elect, the blessed. Psychologists have long known that ritual itself is a built-in part of being human, as the brain's main function is, essentially, to predict the future. It takes in information all the time so that eventually we know what to look out for, how to stay safe from predators, what's safe to eat, where are the safe places to sleep, and what can we take comfort in and what do we need to fear. When the brain can do this function, it gives us a sense of safety and happiness. But when it can't, we feel threatened and anxious. Ritual is the hope to control an uncertain future. Ritual is a hope that everything will be okay. And this includes, most often, the ritual to become financially stable, to be free from a life of pain. Perhaps this is part of the secret's power. Even if it doesn't work scientifically as proponents will say it does, creating vision boards can certainly alleviate anxiety about the future. And that, in and of itself, is a gift. Since its very beginnings, colonial America has always been a get-rich-quick country, from the first gold explorations to the lotteries that funded colonial expansion to the treasure hunts, the gold rush, and all our modern gambles and lotteries that we play today. 
you could say that the secret did in fact work for early Americans as they manifested their destiny across the long land they came to conquer. The dreams on their vision boards were powered by their thinking, by their certainty that they deserved everything that they wanted. But this luck was systematically created on the land of murdered indigenous peoples, the labor of enslaved black people, and to a lesser degree, poor white immigrants. And not to mention our modern working class. Plantation owners grew rich on tobacco, and the robber barons would later grow rich during the Industrial Revolution through gold mines, railroads, and the stock market until they created generations and generations of inherited wealth, as well as a template for CEOs of our most mega-corporations. Even in my old age... I'm still just as human as everyone else. No matter how rational, how skeptical any of us may be, we cannot escape the rituals we need to live. Because hope is just that, a ritual, a dream, one that takes the form of whatever we most desire. To this day, I can't help but focus all of my childlike belief into any uncertainty, hoping secretly that something out there might listen, that there might be a guiding hand looking out for me, that I could move a mountain with just my own version of faith, and that there could be treasure underneath, that if we keep digging, there might be treasure underneath for us all. In the silliest of examples, I always wondered if some lucky invisible force guided my granny's hand that day as she rolled the ball across the hundred different colored cups, winning a carnival lottery that made me richer than I could have dreamed as I carried that enormous stuffed bear on my back like a chest full of impossible gold. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're covering the curse of the lottery, and then we're taking a couple weeks off and coming back with an episode called Men's Rights. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight this week is called Friends of Public School Harlem. Their mission is to level the playing field so Harlem students and schools can reach their full potential and feel the successes they're capable of and want so much to achieve. They use donations to buy iPads and computers for school, to fund the arts, health and wellness programs, and fund other needed resources to support the success of the schools and their students. Please consider following us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. We're always posting memes, talking about what TV shows and movies we're watching, complete with lifetime movie clips and commentary, and generally having a good time making fun of most everything and usually ourselves. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound production by Clear Como Studios, co-researched and co-written by Riley Smith, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. This week we have voice acting by Tamika Lawrence. Check out her music under Tamika Lawrence on all digital platforms. And keep an eye out for her new single, Don't Worry About It, out next month. 
Our other voice actor, of course, is Will Rogers. Make sure you check out his podcast about horror and all things strange with Kristen Rogers Anderson called Guide to the Unknown. Get that on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, as always, for listening. And through this quarantine and hopefully beyond, we're dedicated to continuing to bring you the best content we can. And we thank you for all of your support, whether through Patreon or through your kind words on social media. It all helps us so, so much. I hope you have a great week and get all your rituals right, y'all, lest your treasure escape underground.